welcome to the Total Soccer Show and our UEFA Women's Euro 2022 preview. While the men's game is playing a major international tournament this year in a country with political controversy, a government that doesn't represent the people's interest, massive wage disparity between the classes and general <laughs> low standing on the global stage, the women's game, on the other hand, is playing a major international tournament this year in a country with political controversy, a government that doesn't represent the people's interests, matches way disparity between the classes and low standing on the global stage. That's England banter, everybody. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today to discuss the European action is a man who's taken time away from hot dog eating contests, white claws, fireworks, and wearing shorts with the stars and bars printed on them to join us as we record on July 4th, Taylor Rockwell. So you're saying don't eat my hot dogs and drink my white claws on mic? Okay, got it. Noted. I also think I'm correct in saying that when Saudi Arabia had their embargo on Qatar, which they may still have, I haven't checked on that lately, they dug a like 30-foot trench to cut off the, the barrier, to cut off the, uh, the border. And so in that way, you could also argue Qatar now an island. So uh, England and Qatar have that in common too. Oh, that's lovely, Tater. Thank you for the update there. And I, I, I do assume you were, by the way, drinking white claws. I think like sitting in a lake in one of those sort of hoops, like in a ring. Is that what you were doing? Yeah, I've tried to mute all the background noise so you don't hear that one. And it is going to be awkward with the uh, the mixing board, the computer, the microphone set up, all while floating on an inflatable, inflatable tube. Could be problematic. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, thank you, Taylor, for stepping up to the mic today and doing some work on this uh, national holiday where most Americans aren't working. By the way, in Italy, most Italians aren't working either, but that's uh, different reasons. Also, here is a man who's celebrating America today, but he's doing it with stats. Um, average dispossessions from the British, one. The SPS <laughs> index, the Starbucks per state index, of course. Analyzing the average space between toilet stall doors in public toilets. Why are they so big, America? <laughs> Why are they so big? And the most valuable stat of all, XI expected insurrections. Joe Larry, hello. I thought you were going to say XI expected independence, Ryan Bailey, because that's the word that we choose to use on this side of the Atlantic. That was really, potato, really good. Potato, potato, depending on your perspective, Joe. Potato, potato. <laughs> yeah, but Taylor, you should be on my side on this, so don't be giving Ryan like the benefit of the doubt. No, I mean, Ryan, that was, that was beautiful, first of all, and we do love just giant things in America, so that sort of explains the bathroom question you asked, and we also love Starbucks, as do you, and I'm mm. hoping that that one link can be like the our version of a temporary peace treaty on this July 4th, Ryan. I hope so. I hope so, Joseph. Thank you for joining us. And if you do have any explanation, anyone out there, any listener can tell me why the gaps in toilet door stalls are so huge in America and nowhere else. I'd love to hear it. Anybody got any ideas? I don't have any. Yeah. So no. Republican senators can touch feet from underneath the stall? No? Oh, that, that, is that too, uh, is that too, that's not topical enough of a reference because that happened a while ago, but I'm assuming it still happens. Why not? Let's make it all politics today. I'm sure we've lost half the listener base so far. Let's move on. Let's uh, introduce <laughs> the last man in our group. It's a man very used to talking about international tournaments his country aren't involved in. Hello, Graham Ruthven. <laughs> I mean, it's painful because it's true. And Scotland were at the 2019 World Cup and it did dawn on me while writing the, my research for this, this episode that Scotland are not at this one again. And in the men's game and the women's game, we got our hopes up and qualified for one tournament and thought, this is it. We're going to be permanent members of the elite again. And oh, oh it was a false dawn. Yeah, sorry about that. So sorry, Graham. Well, I'm not really. Anyway, should we talk about Euro 2022, the 13th edition of which kicks off this Wednesday, as we record, that's Wednesday, July 6th. Uh, the first game, England versus Austria at Old, Old Trafford, excuse me. That's a sellout at Old Trafford as well. Uh, we've got a 16-team format for the second time. It was yes. 16 teams in 2017. Graham's loving it, up from 12 in 2013. It feels like 
that's what things should be like, Graham, right? 16 teams, you get, you know, some some real quality in there. And, you know, the top team, the four groups of four, top two going up into the quarterfinals from each group. Simples. Very good, Graham. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's refreshing when you consider how complicated the Men's World Cup is going to become from 2026 and how we were discussing that, I think it was last week or the week before. This is just a, a straight, simple 16-team tournament, as you say, four groups of four, then into quarterfinal, semifinal, final. Simple. What's not to like about it? And what I also like about this format is there's going to be quality all the way through with every single group. If you look through every group, there are at least two teams, I think, that could either win it or at the very least go deep in the tournament. And that means there's going to be high stakes, high quality matches everywhere you look. That Spain-Germany game, I think, on July 12th, if my memory serves me right. That is going to be a blockbuster match. And I think there's going to be several matches like that all the way through the tournament. Graham, I think it's great you you spotlighted the quality there because that's the thing that I kept kind of coming back to in my research is that when you have expanded tournaments as we did with the Women's World Cup in 2019, that tends to lead to an even greater golf in class. And I feel like that was on display maybe in qualifying where you had a lot of teams that topped their group with like plus 40 goal differences. Uh, but as a result, I think when we get to the group stages and obviously in the knockout rounds, but in those group stages, I think it is going to be more even. You're still going to have some blowout wins and you're still going to have some really dull nil-nils when two very defensive teams are playing each other. But overall, I think there's a ton of quality here. And I think it makes a ton of sense that they ended up expanding this tournament. They did indeed. Tay-Tay, 10 stadiums going to be used in this tournament. Wembley for the final. Uh, it displaced the Community Shield. That's going to be played uh, in Leicester on July 31st, the same day as the final. Uh, by my count, uh, 10 stadiums, four of them are Premier League, Old Trafford, Brentford, St. Mary's and Brighton, which is called the Falmer Stadium for UEFA yeah. purposes because they can't <laughs> advertise their lovely credit card related stadium. Uh, three EFL stadiums. We've got Sheffield United, Rotherham and... Um, Your favourite. Yeah, there's another one. Uh, Man City's <laughs> Academy Stadium, where Man City played their home games. There's a 7,000 uh, capacity at that one. And Lee Sports Village, Man United women's home team uh, mm. uh, stadium with a 12,000 capacity. Graham, a bit of controversy about these selections of stadiums. Yeah, there's been a lot of chat about the, the selection of the, the stadium, primarily around City's Academy Stadium, although I think the, the Lee Sports Village Stadium as, as well has, has caught a bit of heat. It's uh, the, the City Academy Stadium is comfortably the smallest venue of the tournament, um, four and four and a half thousand fans due to UEFA's restrictions on standing capacity. And when you consider the demand that there's been for tickets, every single England game is sold out. The final, I think, is sold out. I read that eighty percent of all the tickets have been sold. The, the criticism is that you wouldn't schedule a men's major tournament at a stadium that small, and when the demand is there, it it, it doesn't make much se much sense. To provide a little bit of context, the, the the City's Academy Stadium is the home stadium of of Man City's women's team, and as you mentioned, they're the Lee Sports Villages where Man United play. So there have been big. Uh, women's Champions League games there and big women's Super League games there and uh, it, the City Football, um, the, the Academy Stadium is, is arguably the most prominent women's football stadium in, in the country in terms of its day-to-day -day use but it, it does feel a little bit of a shame that when the demand is there you maybe could have got more fans in could they not have reopened the bid process and made some changes because that's another piece of context is that this bid was put together in 2017 and the FA has clarified that a bid, a bid process requires clubs and venues to come forward and make themselves available. And this was, they picked the best of what came forward. I think if you were putting this bid together now in 2022, you would likely have a lot bigger stadiums and more Premier League clubs coming forward because even in that five-year period between 2017 and now, I think women's football has grown a lot and we've just mm. come out of a, a season where there have been sold out games at St. James's Park and in the Camp Nou in Spain and everything. So that's a little bit of context, but I, it does seem strange and maybe they could have reopened and reconsidered some of the venues.
Indeed. We're going to go through all the groups and look at all the teams in this here pod. But before we get there, Graham, I'm coming to you one more time. Graham's kit watch. Um, yeah. What stood out for you so far? I've got to say the England kits. I've not been a fan of uh, England kits in general in the last few years. But these uh, these women's kits with the iridescent crests and even the orange mm. away kits, they're pretty nice. Yeah, I really like the orange one with the, the iridescent badge. And I was at the, the big Nike shop on Oxford Street in London at the weekend. They had a big showcase of all the Nike kits from the, the Women's Euros. So I had a good look around there. And I have to say, as much as it pains me to say it, the England stuff was was the, they were the kits that caught my eye the most with that iridescent badge. And they've got an amazing training kit, which looks like the Epcot ball. I really like the orange uh, Netherlands shirt as well. Mm. Um, although I just, I wish it had a little splash of blue somewhere as Dutch shirts sometimes have. I think Northern Ireland have a really nice kit with a centralised badge, chunky two-tone neckline. It's kind of retro, germinally along similar lines. That's a good kit as well. And then um, Francie's home kit is very notable, and I've seen a lot of people put that forward as the best shirt of the tournament. It's got this very interesting floral tur- uh, floral pattern. Having seen it in person now, I feel uh, it feels slightly cheap and it's kind of printed, and I wish the execution was slightly yeah. better, but it's, it's, it's pretty good looking. And what I, I really like for this tournament is that almost every kit is bespoke and that hasn't always been the case in the women's game normally and in, in years gone by they would just get the passed down the, the men's team shirts and now they're getting different kits their own kits and and that's brilliant because more kits is a good thing in my book maybe not so much in my wife's book who has to make up the money for a mortgage yeah <laughs> in your wallet certainly not g um yeah i i think the, the france awake it is actually nicer the white one it's a bit With cleaner a yeah, and the home kit, I don't like that pattern, as you as you mentioned. Taylor, I'm going to make my suggestion here that the Dutch have the best kits always because orange is the best colour for a soccer shirt. And this, this, as we speak, is the anniversary of Dennis Bergkamp scoring the wonder goal at France 98 against Argentina, and that reminded me further of how great Dutch kits are. The one that Graham says he probably meant, as opposed to the one that he definitely No, no, yeah, Graham, he said, Graham said he definitely meant it. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> Mostly just trying to throw shade at Graham a little bit. And yeah, Ryan, I agree. I always love the Dutch kits, even if they have to be specially manufactured for Johan Cruyff. Uh, and I do love the orange on them. You can have it looking a little bit bad if you're, say, the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, but if you're the Cleveland Browns, it looks really good. And that is in no way a reference to my loyalty to the Cleveland Browns. Why have you got a loyalty to the Cleveland Browns? Uh, because uh, you got to have a football team and it's not going to be the one located 90 miles north of me. I see. I see. The one that shall not or has not been named whatever. I think they have a name. I'm pretty sure they do. They do now. They do, actually, yes. It's very commanding. Um, (laughs) Why don't we um, move on to the groups? We'll talk about each of the teams. Let's start with Group A. That seems like the smartest place to start. We have England, we have Austria, we have Norway, and we have Northern Ireland. This is an interesting group, Taylor. Where should we start? Should we start with England? Let's uh, Serena Vigman as manager. Um, this team doing pretty well. Three successive final, four appearances in the last three tournaments. An England team with quite a lot of names that many, uh, certainly fans of uh, English women's soccer will have heard uh, heard of. Um, and uh, well, Beth Mead with 14 goals last season as a record for, in a single season for the England team. Lots going on here, Tay-Tay. Yeah, I would say the the most going on in my mind is Serena Wiegmann being in charge. Uh, the former Netherlands manager, now with England, uh, has brought, I would say, more stability, a bit more directness at times. They're still going to press. They're still going to have tons of possession, but they're also okay with sort of uh, hitting early, hitting often, and, and trying to get that lead fairly quickly. But it seems like she has just brought about 
stability and belief in a way that I think wasn't necessarily lacking under, say, Phil Neville, but it just seems like she has the pedigree that automatically commands respect. I equate it with like Pep Guardiola joining Man City, how there's just this element of very established coach who has done big things uh, with another program now coming in and everybody sort of immediately getting on board, but also because there is such an sort of overlay of styles, uh, but in, in terms of how they want to play, the attacking intent, the pressing, it's not a huge drop-off. It's not like Wiegmann had to come in and get everybody up to speed, and it was this huge process. It seemed like they've sort of hit the ground running, had a bunch of success, and my expectation would be they will continue to have a ton of success in this tournament. And, and Taylor, it's interesting you mentioned there just a newfound steadiness to, mm-hmm. to England under, under Wiegmann because that has been... I watched the, the Netherlands friendly that England played recently, and they smashed them 5-1, and obviously... There's a backstory there with that's where Wiegmann has come from and they're the defending European champions. And I know it's a friendly, but it's a bit of a benchmark for England to set ahead of the tournament. And even after they fell behind in that game, they go 1-0 down. And England hadn't, I don't think they'd fallen behind in a game for a long time. They'd won the Arnold Clark Cup a, a few weeks before, a couple months before. So they'd been in good form, but this was a test, you know, a good team fall behind. And, and it just never really felt like they were in much trouble. And they still do a lot of the things that, that England did or tried to do under Phil Neville. They still try and, and, and play it but from the back. They're still fairly attacking, get the fullbacks high and everything like that. But it just feels like there's a confidence and a steal to this England team as well. And I really like the mix that they've got at the moment. So they've got experienced players like Ellen White, Jill Scott, Lucy Bronze, but they've also got youth and in, in the likes of Lauren Hemp, who I think is going to have a big tournament, Chloe Kelly, players like that. And it just feels like they have hit the right place at the right time this England team and the, the more I went through my research the more I started to get worried that worried that I, I think England they're certainly in top three favorites for me but I, I might even have them down as my favorites actually don't worry yeah. don't worry about it Graham it's okay, <laughs> it's okay I mean I, Graham I think I, I think I agree with you because there is sort of that the talent there but uh with England uh, both on the women's side and the men's side, there's sometimes this talent, but ne- not necessarily belief or the ability to execute when push comes to shove. And this England team, especially, there's a great preview of this tournament by Total Football Analysis. Uh, the quote I stole from them, uh, England are 94th percentile for XG per match, shots per match, and touches in the opposition box. They also tend to dominate possession. So this is the team that's going to win that ball back high up. They're going to keep possession. They're going to take a bunch of shots. They're probably going to score some goals. They will be a really entertaining team Uh, but as they advance in that tournament as we expect they will the question becomes are they able to execute that effectively against better opposition who will be set up to nullify some of what they want to do yeah for me there's no question England are one of the favorites I'm not quite as far along I think as, as Graham you are and as Taylor you are in terms of them being maybe the favorites but they're they're in that top four top five group of teams that it just wouldn't shock you at all if they were to win this thing France from group D being another one of those teams I think Sweden and maybe even the Netherlands but but especially Sweden for me in group C and then you look at group B and and maybe we'll talk more about this later but Spain for me is far and away the best team in that particular group and they're a favorite for me to move on as well so England's in that upper echelon and the talents there Taylor you already talked about the tactics aggressive pressing team they, they will dominate the ball in every single group stage game or at least they should dominate the ball in every group stage game and realistically they should top this group um, Joe, why don't we move on to Austria? Um, something that struck me is, you know, when, say you've got Manchester City as a club, there'll be a philosophy that runs through the entire club. All teams and all levels will have this one tie going through them, a philosophy of style. 
Whereas that philosophy doesn't necessarily translate from men's to women's England team, does it not? Because we don't see it with the England team. Perhaps we don't see that with the Austrian team either. Yeah, I mean, to, to look at, I guess, the men's side, I don't want to go too far back and forth on this, but they, I, I don't think they have much of a philosophy tactically. They agree, they're aggressive and they press, but they were a mess at the, at the men's Euros that we watched recently. So, <laughs> yeah, on, on the women's side, they're 21st in the world right now, according to the FIFA rankings. That puts them as the third best team in this group. Don't put too much stock in the FIFA rankings, but that does give you a general idea. They'll possess the ball, but they're not married to it. They'll build from a back four, and I, I do think there's some fun tactical things that go on with Austria, especially when they are building. So they'll try to play out from the back under pressure, and then they'll shift into this back three higher up the field, whether that's the right back tucking inside to form the back three next to the center backs, whether there's another player dropping into those spaces. They're flexible, and they want to do some fun stuff. And they have players in the attack who can convert some of the, the chances they create with their possession. Nicole Bila being one of the, the foremost of those players. Striker, she plays for Hoffenheim. She had 22 goals and seven assists in all comps this past year. She's an excellent player. A lot of these teams have really quality goal scorers. Austria are certainly a part of that contingent. Uh, I, I think they have a really good shot to uh, – I think they have a chance to get out of this group. I don't want to say a really good shot when you have a team like Norway that's that's really pushing as well. But Austria, for me, are are a team that could cause some problems for Norway, for England, and certainly for Northern Ireland in the group. I don't know if they'll get out, but I think they have a shot to do it. And Joe, if they are to get out or if they are able to spring some surprises, a couple other names worth noting. Uh, Sarah Puntagam uh, will be sort of the holding midfielder at the base of that midfield if they're in that sort of 4-3-3. If they're in a 4-3-2-1, we would assume she'll still be in the same spot. She is pretty heavily involved in the, obviously, the defensive side, but then also the transition to attack, and she has the kind of passing ability to uh, start some of those counter opportunities. Uh, Barbara Dunst, who will play on one of the wings, I had a hard time figuring out which one she is most likely to start on. But either way, she won't spend much time there because, as I understand it and from what I've seen, more likely to drift inside and then almost function as a second striker with uh, whichever fullback does get forward, Joe, because I, I had the same thing of one of them is going to stay back, one of them will get forward, it kind of rotates, but... That one will then provide the width. Dunst will come inside to be that support striker and help kind of link up play, and that's how they will facilitate that attack. We should mention really briefly, by the way, England. I don't know if we got into any specific names, but Ellen White, very good. Lauren Hemp, very good. The Men's City combination between the two of them, I feel like, is going to produce a ton of goals. Lee Williamson playing those balls from midfield as well, going to facilitate some goals. So there's some uh, names both for England and Austria. So, Taylor, it sounds like we've spoken about two teams so far, and they both sound like fun attacking sides, potentially? Uh, I don't know if I would say Austria is going to be fun, because I think we will also see, especially on the defensive side, a very deep 4-5-1 at times, with uh, like the, the one being very high up. I agree with Joe. I think it would be Nicole Bila. And she, from what I saw, usually is like 30 yards further ahead, and then it's, it's very defensive. It's very sort of no gaps between the lines, not a ton of space, slow the game down, and then look to play on that counter when the, uh, the situation allows for it. They can possess, obviously, but I think especially in this group, uh, they're going to be looking to play some counterattacking football against everyone, but maybe Northern Ireland. Indeed. Graham, Norway, two-time champions. They've got a great history, but uh, the last Euros, yeah, lost all three games. But on the other hand, Arda Hagerberg is back, baby! Yeah, and this is one of the biggest storylines ahead of the, the tournament as a whole, is the, is the return of Arda Hagerberg, as you say there. Of course, she is one of the biggest names in the women's game, a Ballon d'Or winner. She stopped playing for the national team in 2017 in protest at how Norway treated its women's team, to, to, to speak broadly about it. And now she's back. 
And in her first game back in April for Norway, she scored a hat-trick. I think that game was against Kosovo in, in qualifying. So um, that kind of gives you an idea of her star, star quality. Um, and things were going okay for Norway until her return. But having a player of her quality and influence as well, just I feel it could lift this team as a whole quite significantly. And obviously, Hegerberg had that, that bad ACL injury. I think she was out for over a year and a half. Um, but she's looked great since then. And when you factor in players like Guru Raitin, who has been in really good form for, for Chelsea, and Caroline Graham Hansen, who has had a great season for Barcelona and is a, a tournament veteran. I feel like Norway could be a pretty dangerous tour, a tier two team at this tournament. And I've seen yeah. some predictions of England and Austria getting out of this group. I would be surprised if Austria get out of this group ahead of Norway just because they do seem to have momentum on their side. Hegerberg has a, a point to prove having missed some big tournaments in her career and then Norway have been knocked out of the last two tournaments by England so they have a, a shot of revenge as well in this group and um, yeah just like that I have talked myself into being a Norway fan this summer. <laughs> and and I like the blueprint from Norway tactically in terms of how they set up it's a lot of 4-4-2 they'll possess they'll have the ball but they're pretty pragmatic in how they play. Now yeah. it's a little difficult at times to tell Taylor you mentioned the the big gaps in quality in some of these games between World Cup qualifying and other other matches that are taking place in Europe. If you're a top 30 FIFA ranked team and you're playing any team outside the top 30, the odds are that you are going to have the ball. So it, it, it's difficult at times when you're looking and scouting these games to exactly see how these teams play and how they want to play against teams that are sort of equal and on their level. But Norway, from what I've seen in those kinds of games, they like their 4-4-2. They're happy to be in a mid-block. Sure, they'll press some. Sure, they'll defend deeper at times. But when you have that 4-4-2 and you have Hegeberg and you have Graham Hansen up top as well, those are two players. Graham, you already talked about them. I don't need to say anything else. They're extremely talented. And I, I just think that recipe of relatively pragmatic, simple, not trying to reinvent the wheel in an international tournament, I think there's a lot of value in rolling out a system like that. Joe, this Norway team reminds me there's uh, the Will Ferrell kicking and screaming uh, movie. His entire coaching philosophy is get it to the Italians, the two Italian children who are very good. Uh, Norway, it seems like, despite all the talent they have, ultimately their attacking philosophy is find Hegerberg wherever you can. Uh, she, I think, has a ton of freedom of movement. She can kind of move where she wants to find pockets of space. And then it seems like the distribution out of the back is aiming for her. They build, build around her and then they kind of get into the attack. I agree with you more directly. But it makes it really hard I think for opposition teams because when there is just that one player that is the focal point of the attack oftentimes it's just about marking them out of the game you put two on them you front and follow they can't really do anything but because so much of the transition to attack for Norway is about Hegerberg popping up in unexpected spots it becomes that much more difficult because if you have a center back tracking her and she moves all the way back into midfield and you've got a trade off now you've got people out of position or you can create overloads and I think that's a huge part of Norway is that sort of discipline and structure allows them to create chaos in an improvis improvisational way when they're on the ball and I I agree with Graham. I think it's Norway getting out of this group. Um, their defensive record has been much better of late, uh, conceding fewer goals in World Cup qualifying than they were in the Euros. And I think it's just going to be a very strong, strong team uh, that could maybe spring a surprise or two. Uh, speaking of very, very strong teams, or the opposite thereof, uh, Group A is rounded out by Northern Ireland, uh, the lowest ranked team at the tournament. This is their Euro debut. Uh, according to Info Goals probabilities, they are 1.3% likely to qualify out of this group. Um, Graham, anything positive to say about Northern Ireland? 
Um, that they are there to have a good time, if not necessarily a long time. <laughs> I, I agree. I think they are, they are probably the weakest team in this tournament. But much like Scotland at the 2019 World Cup, I think it's potentially about um, gaining that experience. And, and um, they do have some quite a lot of young players in, in, in that team. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really about building on this tournament and, and trying to get to, to more tournaments I've tried not to listen to Kenny Shields that often. I was thinking about uh, listening to one of his interviews, but after his comments about, what was it he said? Women are more emotional, and that's why they concede goals in shorter periods of time. I've kind of skipped over a lot of what he said uh, before this tournament. Yo, that's not great. Uh, if if we wanted to find maybe a potential for optimism for Northern Ireland... Uh, Add one a- more qualifier. Add one more qualifier, <laughs> Taylor. <laughs> a potential possible maybe there is. There positive. Is. It would basically just be that, as I understand it, uh, because I'm not an expert in uh, women's football in Northern Ireland, uh, they are the, uh, the smallest nation that's qualified. They're the lowest ranked team in the tournament. I think also a majority of their players are semi-professional at best. But I think what that has allowed is them to have much more of a consistent training camp atmosphere sphere uh i equate it with the u.s men's team prior to the 94 world cup when there wasn't a domestic league so it was basically the national team playing together training together every single day and it built this chemistry and camaraderie and it sounds like that has been the case for most of this northern ireland squad that they've had a ton of opportunity to play together because they are semi-professional they're based in northern ireland so they get more reps together they also have more familiarity with these teams they've played uh, norway in i think euro qualifying previously uh, but then they are in a group with england and austria in world cup qualifying presently they're currently third but so you do get familiarity against these opponents and I think also you learn maybe a little bit more how to frustrate how to play that very defensive 3-5-1-1 slash 3-6-1 or whatever it will be Uh, probably more of a five at the back I guess but I think you could argue that maybe they get get a ton of reps together there's a ton of familiarity and experience playing off of each other against opposition they've played before so you wouldn't expect them to at the very least be completely overwhelmed or unprepared for who they're going to be facing. I think their competitiveness will depend on whether they can get get Rachel Furness, who obviously plays yeah. for for Liverpool. She is, uh, <laughs> I, I was going to say, an important player, but that doesn't quite state her importance to this team. She's kind of everything yep. to this Northern Ireland team in that she's our goal scorer, playmaker. She's got a very good record. I'm just reading here: 38 goals and 84 appearances for for Northern Ireland. So that kind of illustrates just how important she is. And she's 34, so this is maybe her last opportunity to make a mark in a tournament like this. So if she if she can get some support and if they can harness her in, in some of the games, then it could be competitive for Northern Ireland. If not, uh, I kind of worry for them. Nice kits though, Graham. Yeah, very nice kits. They might have the best kits in, kit in the whole Euros, actually. So there you go, Northern Ireland. There you go, silver linings all around. That's Group A. Going to take a quick break. When we come back, Group B. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willingly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We are talking Women's Euro 2022 Group B. Is this possibly the group of death? We've got Germany and Spain in here. We've also got Denmark. We've also got Finland. That's a tough group, Graham. Yeah, absolutely. And this this is the the group of death, quote unquote, of this tournament. And this is the this is the downside really for Group A, is that Group A might be the weakest of the tournament. But the two teams that come out of that group are going to face the top two teams from Group B, who, if it's if it's Germany and Denmark, or if it's Spain and Denmark, or Spain and Germany, they're all going to fancy a deep run. They're all uh, teams with good pedigree at this level. Denmark obviously making the final of the last Euro, Spain the tournament favourites, Germany the, the most historically uh, successful team in this competition. So absolutely, this is the... This is the group to watch. And as I said, that, that Germany-Spain game on July 12th is going to be the, the first real blockbuster match of this whole tournament. Uh, uh, Joe, let's start off with Germany then. Uh, eight-time winners, as Graham said, they are very successful in this tournament. Eight-time winners, and, and they've only entered 10 times. So, uh, yeah, they're quite good at this. Uh, Leah Schuller, uh, potential for a golden boot in this one as well. Uh, another another story, Joe, of the Germans being good at the soccers. Yeah, yeah, that shouldn't surprise a lot of folks at this point. Coached by Martina Vosteklenberg, she's been in charge since 2018. Uh, I have some questions about this German team. I'll leave it to, to, I guess, Taylor to maybe be a little more positive about them. I, I think this is a strong group, clearly. They're fourth in the world, according to the FIFA rankings. But I, I don't think, and from what I've read, it doesn't seem like there are these ridiculous title aspirations from fans and from people watching this team and people writing about this that's team. That's when they're dangerous. I know, I know and that's that's <laughs> totally fair. It wouldn't shock me. Maybe I'll preface some of my comments with this. It wouldn't shock me if Germany win this group and if they do some damage in the knockout rounds of this tournament. It wouldn't shock me at all if, if a lot of different teams make a run. 
But I don't know that expectations quite match what some of the betting odds have said and match their position in the FIFA rankings. And so I was curious reading more about, okay, why is this team ranked so highly? What what have they done recently? And, and realistically, they haven't played anyone in quite some time. They haven't played anyone with, with a ton of quality. They're high up in the FIFA rankings, and, and they're built, that, that ranking, that fourth ranking, is built on the back of results from like a year ago. Germany hasn't played a team higher than 20 in the FIFA ranking since a 1-0 loss to France on June 10th, 2021. So it's been almost 13 months since Germany has played a realistic title contender. They have talent, for sure. They just beat Switzerland 7-0 a couple weeks ago. They have goal scorers. They have players playing in France and in Germany and tons of quality in this team. They can do damage, to be very, very clear. But I don't know. Something to me right now says from what I've watched and from what I've read that maybe this German team is overhyped ever so slightly. Now I'm looking forward to them just winning this whole darn thing. <laughs> uh, Taylor, what do you think? Positive spin for Germany, please? I, I'm I'm actually pretty confused by Germany uh, for maybe stupid reasons. But, like, Joe, I think, is correct in everything he said, and that is a lot of what I've read in previews from people more familiar with this German team than I, that there's reason for optimism, but also, like, who knows, and there's reasons for concern, and we don't know about this, and we don't know about that. And it all feels sort of, like, a little bit grasping at straws because I think the larger point is they haven't beaten a ton of good opposition and they've crushed everyone else they've played. If you look at how they qualified for this one, eight wins in eight games, 46 goals for one against. Their closest game was a 3-1 to one win over Ireland. Uh, scored a ton of goals. Uh, then in World Cup qualifying, the same thing. Seven wins, one loss, 36 goals for five against. They're ahead of Serbia, Portugal, and Turkey. Uh, uh, Serbia and Portugal on the women's side both uh, particularly strong or decently and decently strong enough but to joe's point not that top tier of opposition you would expect germany to sort of be rolling i think a lot of it also has to do with just sort of like not having in my mind at least as many of like the huge terrifying names that i've come to expect from germany don't get me wrong they have plenty of very very good players and as i mentioned they have plenty of very good goal scorers uh leah schuller currently leading at the very least her group in world cup qualifying with 11 goals uh in eight games that is no small number but i think it's it's basically just uh how does this team gel and how do they do against opposition that we would expect will be stronger and on occasion will be more defensive I think I think the questions that everyone has about Germany are actually they are simplified when you look at the players that they'll have at, the, at this Euros. So they, they'll be without uh, Marosan and, and Leopold's their two central midfielders. Right. Uh, Marosan's injured, Leopold's is pregnant. So that's their, their centre midfield gone. And then their defence, which has usually been their strongest point in, in, in recent years or going back a few years, then Hegering is, uh, Marina Hegering, she is struggling for fitness at the moment as well. So there's three key players that they are likely going to be all three without. But then you have players who are in really good form. So uh, Magul and Sarah de Brits for Leon, Alexandra Pop, they've all had very, very good seasons. And so if they can carry the momentum into the tournament, it almost makes up for, not that those players are not good players, but what you're saying there, Taylor, is they don't have maybe the superstars that Germany have had in the past, mm. but maybe just ha that momentum they have from having a good season makes up for that. And if they can carry that into the tournament, then maybe Germany are going to be better than a lot of people expect them to be. 
Joe, let's go from Germany to the other shark in the Group B tank, Spain. Uh, uh, the bookies' favourite, many bookies' favourites, I should say. They're a very attacking, pretty dangerous side. There's a good piece in The Guardian that Sid Lowe wrote uh, today, as we record, uh, who made the point that the rise of this Barcelona side means that this Spain side are expected to challenge the established powers, which almost feels like the men's side of a decade ago, being powered by the same club, arguably. But, Joe, looking at things, this team might have a capitulation within it somewhere. I'm looking, thinking my, the French, French men's team have that sometimes at tournaments. They've only won three of 12 Euro matches played. So what do we think of Spain, Joe? I think a lot of Spain. I, first of all, I'm really looking forward to, Ryan, you complaining about them throughout the entire tournament as they just pass <laughs> the ball around because that's, that is what's going to happen. And it, it's going to be entertaining at times and it's going to be drab at other times. They have not had less than 69% possession in any game in 2022. So they have that Barca core to this team. 78% possession in a 1-1 draw with Italy on July 1st. That's the kind of game, Ryan, that I, I can just imagine you you having some bad things to say about, which is <sighs> somewhat understandable. 76% possession in a game against Australia before that. That was a drubbing. Spain absolutely dispatched Australia. 71% against Scotland, 69% against Brazil, and I just gave up on writing it after that. But they're all at least 69% or higher and 10 of 23 players in this Spain squad are from that Barcelona team, which let's not forget was one of the most dominant ever and, and really has been for the last couple of years, even though they didn't win this most recent Champions League final. That was Lyon's victory. This team is really, really good. You look at Alexia Puteas, you look at this this all-Barcelona midfield. There's players uh, from other La Liga clubs in the forward line and in the back line and obviously providing depth in midfield as well. But this team, I think, has... Uh, this team is my favorite to win this tournament. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. It is and can be difficult to consistently generate high-quality chances with just that total ball-dominant approach. But it, it's not mm. just that for Barcelona. It, it is that first and foremost, but it is also winning the ball high, pressing very aggressively, attacking in transition. They'll do all of those things. My biggest question for Spain in this tournament is, will there be enough of those transition moments? How many mistakes can they capitalize yeah. on from the opposition? Because teams are not. No team in this group, and that includes Germany in my mind, are, is going to give them many opportunities to press and, and create in transition. It's going to be for Spain almost all about, if their opponents play their, their cards right, almost all about how Spain breaks through blocks. I'm, I'm reluctant to draw too many parallels parallels between the women's game and, and the men's game, but I think in this, game, in this case it, it is warranted because the question for me with Spain is whether they can translate their control in games into into goals. And without Hermoso around, I think there's going to be a bit more pressure on uh, Pateas, who obviously is arguably the best player in the world at the moment. So maybe she, she can handle that. Maybe that's not going to be a, a problem. But it is something that can give opponents hope in the same way that last summer in the men's Euro, Spain had great control in the game, played wonderful, attractive football. But just in the, in the moments where they needed to find a goal, sometimes they weren't able to. And that's the one concern I have about this Spain team. Other than that... They just look so strong all the way through that team. A lot of the names you mentioned there, Joe Pateas, Bomate, Paredes, Esther Gonzalez, Sandro Panos, just huge names in the, in the women's game. Two things for me on Spain that I think make me, one makes me more positive. Uh, the first that is sort of unrelated, Ryan, you mentioned the kind of rise of the, the, that Barcelona team and how strong they've been. Uh, I've heard a bunch about that. I've also heard, and I think it's worth noting, 
that the rise of the league in general in Spain and also Real Madrid getting their team started has also fueled that rivalry, has fueled that competitiveness, and has made, I think, the Spanish team better as a result. It doesn't seem like there's a ton of infighting. It just seems like there are more opportunities for players to go play and get paid for it, and that allows them to kind of raise their game accordingly. So I think that was an interesting uh, note for me, but it's also interesting when you look at what they've been doing outside of qualifying, because they've scored... Uh, I think I had the number in front of me. They scored 93 goals between Euro qualifying and World Cup qualifying over 14 games. That's 6.6 goals per game. They score goals, does does Spain. But they also play good teams when they're not playing those qualifiers. They've had a draw with Italy. They've had a draw with Brazil. They beat Canada. They schedule teams uh, and tournaments that I think allows them to practice playing open football against better teams while those qualifiers, I think, are letting them see what it's like to play their type of football against teams that are maybe going to try to bunker or aren't up to that skill level. And so I think they have a sort of well-rounded portfolio heading into this tournament, even with some of the injuries they do have, as you mentioned, uh, Graham. I still think uh, Puteas alone could could be a difference maker if she has to kind of just pick a ball up and go score some goals. Just to clarify my, my comments about kind of a lack of goals, mm-hmm. I was thinking primarily of the Arnold Clark Cup, which was the, the tournament earlier this year where, where Spain, I think, before that tournament, it, it was almost just a, a a widespread agreement that Spain were going to walk these Euros. I think mm-hmm. they, they seem to just be arguably the strongest team in, in European women's football history. But then that, that tournament has raised some questions. Yeah. So you look through the results. 1-1 against Germany, 0-0 against England, 1-0 against Canada. So they don't score more than one goal in any of those games. And that's maybe the closest thing to a, a tournament environment that we've had or Spain have had since since the last World Cup, at least that they've been involved in. So just watching some of those games, and I did watch some of those games in the Arnold, Arnold Clark Cup, um, that's kind of where my yeah. concern came And Graham, from. I think that's a really important concern to spotlight because... I would be more concerned about it if they hadn't had those results, basically, because then we would have this team that's just destroyed everyone, has all this hype, but also hasn't played that difficult of opposition. And now they have, and they haven't scored a ton of goals. It hasn't gone especially well. But my thinking is just that when you do have a team that is this strong, this technically competent, and this confident, you can play those games kind of realize, oh, it didn't go the way we wanted. We need to change some things. We need to be more pragmatic in certain situations. We can't just sort of pass the ball around and hope something develops. We've got to take the game by the scruff of the neck and make something happen. And maybe that Arnold Clark Cup allows them to have more of a solid foundation when they are playing uh, stronger opposition. So I remain pretty enthusiastic about Spain uh, as well, even if they maybe didn't score a ton of goals. But I guess Ryan likes them for not scoring against England, so it all balances out. Joe, <laughs> uh, Germany and Spain will be expected by many to escape this group. But what about Denmark? Uh, 2017 finalist Denmark, that is. Uh, could they challenge? Ah. Uh, uh... I think so. I, I really do think so. I don't think they should be favored to get out of this group. 15th in the world, played mostly out of a 3-4-3 shape. Um, that, that's generally their approach. They like to press high, and they do have quality. The star player that I think at least some folks out there will already know is Pernille Harder, who is a right-footed attacker, plays as one of the, the narrow wingers in that 3-4-3 shape, often as an inverted left winger on the, on the left side, cutting in on her right foot. She's won every title. She's won, she's won the league title, I should say, every year since 2016. So back to back to back to back, that's four with Wolfsburg, and then back to back with Chelsea. So she's clearly an experienced player, an experienced winner at this point. Denmark, with that aggressive 
style and, and with some real firepower in the attack, I don't think they're just going to lie down in this group by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, any other thoughts, Tate, on Denmark? Just that I think uh, Denmark, Spain, which is the final uh, game of the group stage for both teams, good could be good. I think that's going to be the, one of the best games of this group stage, maybe of the group stage overall, because it's a Denmark team that also want possession. They don't want to give the ball away. A huge part of how they want to play is to keep possession, keep the ball moving. Uh, they have, I believe, forty-seven recoveries in the opposition half per game, uh, so they really press high. They want to. Win the ball back i think spain will do the exact same thing and so we're basically going to get two teams playing two very similar styles and systems trying to do like very frustrating things to each other and i think we're going to end up getting sometimes that can end in like a beautiful game where everyone is very technical sometimes that can be very ugly uh and sometimes it can be sort of dull and i'm not sure ugly in a physical sense and then dull in a goalless everybody just keeps possession and nothing happens sense but i have a feeling that one will end up being pretty wide open and pretty compelling. So I'm excited uh, for Denmark. I guess I'm excited for Finland. (laughs) I don't know. I don't really know that much about them. (laughs) Other than that, they tend to leave it late uh, and they get sort of fluky goals here and there and uh, could spring a surprise on at least one of these teams. Well, what I do know about Finland, Graham, is they eliminated Scotland from qualifying with an Amanda (laughs) Rantanen goal, which went in off her face. <laughs> I actually completely forgotten about that goal. Uh, thank you for bringing that up, Ryan. That is a, a nice memory for me to recall. <laughs> You're very welcome. Any any more notes on Fiddling before we move on to Group C, G? Twenty inch. Oh no. Th- oh, sorry. My name oh, doesn't sorry. start with G. You go ahead, Graham. <laughs> You're a J. No, I have nothing else to add. <laughs> okay. So, Joe, on you go. go on. Okay, just quickly. Twenty eighth in the world. They're one of the lowest FIFA ranked teams in this competition. They usually play with two strikers, and they've only won, uh, I believe, one game since October of 2021, and that was against Georgia in World Cup qualifying in April. More recently, they lost both of their tune-up games yeah. to this competition: a two-nil loss to the Netherlands and a five-one loss to Japan. I have a hard time fi- imagining Finland doing a ton of damage in this competition. Joe, totally oh. agree with you, and especially since I think those Brazil goals are uh, very vulnerable to set pieces and crosses, whereas in qualifying, I think they only conceded two goals in the lead-up to this tournament in uh, Euro qualifying. So seemed like they had this really good defensive approach. They were going to sit deep. They were going to frustrate. And then in those friendlies against France, Netherlands, Brazil conceding a bunch of goals on set pieces and crosses. Maybe they're a bit more open and maybe less stable than I would have expected. So I I don't see Finland making it out of this one. I'm not sure they win a game. But you never want to count out the Finns. You never know. Indeed. Group C, guys. We've got the Netherlands. We've got Sweden, Switzerland, and Portugal. Graham, let's start off with the Netherlands, them of excellent kits. Uh, Mm. We do keep coming back to kits, but hey, we like kits. Uh, They've got an English coach in Mark Parsons. I don't know what to make of this team, Graham, whether they're going to go quite far or do absolutely nothing in this group. It could be one or the other from what I can tell here. Um, and also, I do like that we mentioned that England-Netherlands friendly earlier earlier in the episode where we had uh, England playing in orange, the Netherlands playing in yeah, white. Yeah, that was weird. With the England having the former Dutch coach and Netherlands having an English person in charge. Yeah, I mean, it was basically what Manchester United's men's team are trying to do right now and just becoming <laughs> the Netherlands. Um, but yes, this, this is a... I am really interested in the Netherlands ahead of this tournament because obviously they're the defending champions. They have a very strong team, but you're right to question what we're going to see from them at this tournament because the big storyline concerning them at these Euros is, yes, that they're, they lost their manager. Serena Wegman has, has, has gone to England. She led them to the last Euros. How will they cope? How big of a difference will that make? They also lost her quite late in that she... She changed jobs last year and then they got Mark Parsons in, who is obviously a, a very 
well thought of coach in the women's game, former Portland Thorns coach, but he was allowed to finish the, the NWSL season, so he wasn't able to take over until really the, the start of this year, and there were stories about him kind of doubling up slightly, and he's renowned for the amount of work that he puts in, and I read a report that he had 32 hours of Zoom calls with Dutch players before officially starting his job, which um, sounds like the definition of this could have been an email, but nonetheless, <laughs> oh, great. I think he, he is. He's, he's definitely signed up for premium. The 40-minute limit hasn't hit him yeah, there, has Yeah, it? exactly. Yeah, he doesn't have a free account. Yeah. Um, but it, he hasn't been in the job for long and he he's still playing that 4-3-3 shape that is obviously so precious in, in Dutch football and he has tried to make slightly more of the attacking talent than he has than, than his, that he has than his predecessor he's asking the fullbacks to get forward more he wants, wants a higher defensive line but he hasn't been able to make a lot of wholesale changes it's just little tweaks here which I think is sensible because the, with the tournament being so close you probably don't have the, the time to do that he's also had some injuries as well so it hasn't really fit it doesn't feel like he's had an opportunity to get his best team on the pitch and that 5-1 defeat to England just raised more questions about what we're going to see from from the Netherlands but they do have a, a great team full of great players you know obviously Viviana uh, Miedema is one of the the best goal scorers around in in, in the women's game and so if they can just if they can get service to her then the Netherlands have a chance in pretty much every game they play against no matter the, the opposition but it is one of the big questions ahead of this tournament is what are we going to see from the Netherlands Taylor like your last date night are you going Dutch on this one <laughs> uh for this group you mean for this tournament, for this group, have at it. I think I think uh, I would say the Netherlands and Sweden should be feeling mostly confident uh, when you look at who else they're playing in this group. But I, I do sort of share. It's not concern. It's not confusion. I'm just sort of uncertain about this Dutch team because but yeah, exactly because because of <laughs> of Mark Parsons taking over and being such a detailed manager. Graham, I read that that stat. I also read that he had watched like all of their games for the last like five years or something before taking over. So he knew everyone intricately, but again, does he have the time to sort of know how to get this team to respond? I guess is, is what I'm looking at is when you have a, a manager come in and he doesn't have as much time on the job working with these players, they can have the same system. They can have the same style. There can be those little tweaks, but then when push comes to shove, when you've got to get a result in the group stage, when you need a goal in the final 10 minutes, do you have the ability to communicate and sort of command that team to make that happen? I think we'll find out as the group stage goes, but he can take solace in the fact that he certainly has the talent. Uh, we should we should pause to mention uh, Vivian Miedema, 92 goals and 108 appearances, which is not bad for a 25-year-old. That is very young Oof. to have scored almost 100 goals and made over 100 appearances. She is similarly pr prolific with Arsenal, where she is just renewed, and she is... Probably one of the most exciting players to watch at this tournament, even if she strikes me as like herself, like maybe not aware of what enthusiasm is. She always seems very calm, very stoic, very relaxed, but then manages to pop up and score huge goals when the situation requires. So she's one who won't be the most like uh, flamboyant of players, not the most energetic or on the ball dribbly of players, but she's just going to pop up, score goals and be quietly, comprehensively good for the Dutch. Uh, Joe, let's, uh, if you don't mind, move on to Sweden. I think you mentioned earlier in the show them being among your favourites or the teams you're most interested in seeing. Second in the FIFA rankings at the moment. Pretty highly rated. I don't want to use the term dark horse because I don't think they're quite that, but sure. they are certainly um, up there, aren't they? 
Well, in terms of dark horse, they're just not going to be talked about as much as England or the Netherlands or France or Spain or Germany just because of the cultures in those places and and sort of how mainstream media tends to cover different countries and focus on them. But Sweden, in terms of what they can do on the field, I think should certainly be one of the favorites. Ryan, you mentioned number two in the world right now. Tactically, they are a very sound defensive group. They can play out of a mid-block. They can step forward and press. And I think they're really, they really pride themselves on their defensive work in, in a still aggressive and sort of expansive kind of way. I enjoy watching them defend. The U.S. women's national team really did not enjoy watching them defend at the Olympics because Sweden sort of took the U.S. to task in that tournament. So there is plenty of tactical ability in this team. And there's also plenty of talent. Aslani is a, a really strong technically gifted forward, a really, really, really quality player. And then you have Jakobsen who can play on the wing. She's a, a really talented player as well. There's others in this group. They have the individual game breakers to, to pair with some of their defensive ability. And for those reasons, again, in a tournament, I'm, I'm pretty high on Sweden and their ability to not only get out of this group, but maybe to do some more damage once they've done that. Greg? I was, I was surprised when looking at the odds that Sweden, you have to go down to the, to fit, you have to go down five teams, sorry, to, before you get to Sweden. They're fifth favourites for this tournament. And when you consider, Joe, you ran, ran through some of the things they, they, they have achieved, you know, Olympic silver medalist. They only lost that, that final to Canada in a, in a shootout. Silver at the 2016 Olympics as well. Third at the, the 2019 World Cup when they beat England pretty comprehensively. All the talent that they have. Um, I think this is going to be a, a big tournament for uh, Stina Blackstenius, who is, is, I think she's on the, she's on the brink of becoming... A superstar. She moved to Arsenal in, in January. She's so important for this Sweden team. And I just think a big tournament for her. And she she propels herself into those names of Pateas and, and Miedema and all those sort of, of names. The timing of her runs. I was watching quite a lot of footage of her this morning. Timing of her runs just give Sweden a lot of uh, a lot of options. She's a good passer. She's got that partnership with Miedema at Arsenal. That's become pretty special pretty quickly. And I think Blackstenius is one of the players that I'm looking forward to watching at this tournament most. But just feeding it back to the, the original point, they've got so much talent and they, they seem to be building and getting better and better. So I am surprised that there isn't as much talk about them as one of the favourites. Yeah, the, the depth is really the thing that stands out, as Joe and Graham have, have truly emphasised. But it's across the board. Looking at qualifying, I think they got 10 goals from defenders, most of those offset pieces. So we see a team that has experience, has played together a lot, uh, has a manager in Peter Gerhardsen who won the bronze with him at the World Cup and then silver at the Olympics. So we would assume this is a team that's building towards that next level, that next step. And amongst the names that have already been mentioned, there's Fridolina Rolfo, 28-year-old attacker for Barcelona, 22 goals in 65 appearances, multiple clutch goals in qualifying to get them here, technical increase creative, won the U19 Euros with Sweden in 2012, along with a bunch of teammates who are in this current team. So you just have depth, you have familiarity, you've got veteran leadership. I think the oldest player at this tournament is goalkeeper Hedvig Lindahl, who's 39. The oldest outfield player in this tournament is Carolyn Seeger, who's their captain. She's 37. She'll be in the midfield. So there's veteran presence. There are young players waiting to break through. There is world-class talent. There's a manager who knows to get the best out of this squad. I will not be surprised if they spring a result against the Netherlands in their group opener, and that sets the stage for them to qualify comfortably for the knockout rounds only one warm-up match though which i found peculiar they, they did beat brazil so they got at there least got a good result out of it <laughs> but one when everyone else seems to be playing so many matches ahead of this tournament to try and get prepared for sweden to play one maybe, maybe that's uh maybe they're just, that's a flex maybe they're like we only need we to play one need match it. and we'll just go and win the whole thing yeah we don't even need, need those games 
All right, let's get the rest of Group C covered. Uh, Tato, Switzerland. I am feeling fairly neutral about this team. I'm issuing a beige alert. Please tell my wife hello. <laughs> issuing a beige alert. Uh, I would say uh, for Switzerland, the one player to really keep an eye on would be Anna Maria Sernogorosevich. Oh boy, I might have gotten that one wrong. I apologize. There is a pronunciation guide for names, but it's a CRN name to start it, which is where it gets confusing for me. 31-year-old striker uh, and wingback, which is a totally normal thing. She plays as a wingback fullback for Barcelona. But for this team, she will likely be a center forward or one of the key attackers uh, and has been incredibly important to this uh, national team. 67 goals and 133 appearances. So she's been there. Uh, since a teenager when she turned down Croatia to play for this Switzerland team uh, who got here finishing second in their group. They were able to, to beat Belgium. They did get some results. Uh, Ramona Bachman and uh, Senogonovic. Nope, let me try that one again. Senogorsevic, there it is, uh, were their leading <laughs> goal scorers in qualifying. So there is talent there. But I think it's just sort of like we don't know if they have the ability to play at that next level, to handle some of the talent they're going to be facing. Because ultimately, it's a team that, in my mind, is sort of not yet ready to jump to that next level. So I would expect them to be uh, competent in this tournament, but maybe not make it out of this group. Joe, finally, let's talk about Portugal, the only team to qualify for this tournament who didn't qualify for this tournament. Um, they replaced Russia, who had to step down for non-sporting reasons. Um, Joe, I think they are probably not going to do too much damage in Group C. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I don't I don't see them doing much damage at all in this group. 29th in the world, relatively limited in the attack. Uh, they'll, they'll likely drop into a, more of a mid-block and focus on trying to compress space and really pressure the ball in specific instances. Diana Silva is a player to watch. Struggled a little bit in England, now scoring or, or had been scoring a bunch of goals in Portugal this past season. I, I just don't think, Ryan, you mentioned them not, them not actually qualifying for this tournament. I just don't think they have the quality in this team to really do much damage for me this group c is a, a clear divide between the netherlands and sweden and then between switzerland and portugal in those bottom two spots all right thank you very much joseph quick break time when we come back the final group group d back shortly this episode is brought to you by linkedin jobs who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role you don't want to end up with ryan graham and joe just kidding just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. 
And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We are talking Group D now. Oh, there's some big names in here. We've got France, we've got Italy, Belgium, and Iceland. Graham, why don't we start with the French? They are third in the FIFA rankings. They've got a star player in Marie Antoinette Cartoto. But will the French let the rest eat cake? Mm. Prediction, mm. no. Nope. Uh, France have a lot of quality, but they've earned themselves a, a reputation for being perennial underachievers in the major tournaments in the women's game. And they had that golden generation about a decade ago, but France still haven't been past the quarterfinals of, of a tournament. And that golden generation has has now faded. And this is the real storyline with this French team at the moment. There is a bad atmosphere in that dressing room and that doesn't quite uh, state properly the, the extent of that bad atmosphere. I know, shocking for a France team at a major tournament. But Lyon's players, and of course Lyon won the, the, the Women's Champions League this season, so a lot of high-quality players. They've been in conflict with the manager, Karine eh, Diacra, for years. And there were claims that players were mistreated by Diacra at the 2019 World Cup. And there's no sign of Le Sommer or Amandine Henri in this squad, that, despite them clearly being very good and being good enough for this team because of that dressing room tension. And maybe I'm missing some context, but it's kind of remarkable to me that Diacra yep. is still in charge, given that this team has underperformed for years. So, um, again, to maybe draw a lazy comparison with the, with the men's game, you know, there's a lot of questions of Didier Deschamps in France, but he does. They've won, they won the last World Cup and he does del- deliver results. That doesn't really seem to be the case with uh, Karine Diacra. And she's a very divisive figure. There's a lot of other stuff as well. Her nickname is Dragon, which sort of gives you an idea of how she is viewed in French football. I guess this tournament gives her the chance to prove that she's the right person for the job and that she's doing the right things for this team. I don't see that happening. And I would be surprised, despite the obvious quality in this French team, I would be surprised if they're one of the contenders at the end of the tournament. I think they're going to crash and burn. If not in the group stage, I think the quarterfinals seems like the the place where their tournament might end. Well, and and that's the question about this team, Graham, is how much some of those behind-the-scenes and backroom things impact the the quality of play. I I don't know where to put this team because on talent, they are very clearly a favorite, one of the favorites. Ryan, you mentioned uh, some really promising attacking players. One other I want to add is Cascarino, Delfina Cascarino, who plays for Lyon. She's a winger, very good right foot, great speed, great close control. Watching her play with Katarina Macario and and just the rest of that star-studded Lyon team was so much fun this past season as they lifted the Champions League trophy. She's another player to watch in addition to the quality in the back they have, some of the names that have been around for a long time. There's a ton of of ability in this team. They don't do anything wild tactically. It's a pretty classic standard 4-3-3 from what I've watched, but they're a strong team. The question is, is that on-field quality going to outweigh some of the behind-the-scenes issues? I and, and, and for me, there's just no no way on earth that I can answer that question. 
Let me put it this way, uh, and I'm sure this is a reference that everyone will get. Uh, Kareen Diacre watches the movie Varsity Blues and can't understand why everyone is so mean to John Voight's character, the mean football coach, who eventually is ousted like publicly, I believe, at the end of that movie. Spoiler alert for a movie <laughs> that came out decades ago. Uh, but it seems like a similar vibe where it's this coach in Diacre that's an institution, basically, has been there for so long, managed a professional men's team, which was uh, which is no small feat, uh, given that there's still this big divide between the men's and the women's game and I think has had success with the French team such that there's a ton of respect but also that sort of demanding approach there are a lot of adjectives that I will avoid using that I read about none of them particularly positive about how she structures things how she organizes things and so it's a team that feels very much like if they're winning then it's going to go really really well and everyone's going to be happy if they're struggling that's where those kind of cracks will become that much more obvious uh, exemplified Sarah Buhati the longtime goalkeeper who has now retired because she doesn't want to play for Diacre said I could bet my life that the French team will not win the Euros if Diakra remains in charge. So we'll see what happens there. That's a big bet to make. But it's still a team that are just destroying people. They breeze through qualifying. Uh, eight wins from eight in World Cup qualifying, so they've already secured uh, qualification to next summer's World Cup. They beat a very good opposition in the Tournée de France uh, in April of 2021. Excuse me, they've only lost once since April of 2021. So they have just incredible talent, incredible ability to score. Uh, we've already said a few of those names, but then there is Marie Antoinette Cototo, who is a player that I think scored 46 and 44 last season, but also was left off the 2019 World Cup squad, having scored 30 and 29 that year. And Diacre was very pointed in her criticism, and, and that led to more conflict between those two. So it's a player that there was a huge falling out, there was kind of a feud, and is now basically the focal point of the attack for France. It just seems like there are there's a lot of uh, a kindling laid in case something goes wrong. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're being overly dramatic and they kind of gel and have a lot of success and everybody's on board. But I think if they stumble, if there are some bad results, I don't know if this team is one that picks itself up off the mat. Wow. That's our chaos element for the tournament then, Tate. Yes, sir. Lovely stuff. Uh, let's talk about Italy. Joe, um, it's, it's interesting... I know I've spent a lot of time in the US and women's soccer is obviously a huge phenomenon in the US. In the UK, it's a massive growing force and it's very popular now. In Italy, I have to say, it's not huge women's soccer here yet. It hasn't quite had the cultural impact it's had in certainly other places I have lived and visited, um, which might be in line with the general misogyny of this country. But that's another uh, question or another statement altogether. But what do we make of this Italy team? I, re- I didn't use the term dark horse for another team earlier on, but could you apply it here possibly? Uh, you you could. I don't think Italy really have it in them to make a run. It wouldn't surprise me if they got out of this group, just because I think after France, it's kind of anyone's game. I haven't really been impressed by Italy, Belgium, or Iceland in in the film that I've watched and, and from what I've done research wise on these teams. Italy are 14th in the world, so you know they're they're in the upper area of the FIFA rankings are going to give France possession and they might end up holding the ball against Belgium and Iceland. They like to play out of a 4-3-3, but you put them up against a team that is in, you know, the top 5 or top 10 in the world and and they just sort of crumble. They bunker against Spain I mentioned earlier. They gave up the vast majority of the ball. They have quality players. Christi- uh, Cristiana Giorelli is a player to watch, 32-year-old striker. Five goals in the Champions League last year for Juve, which is a really good tally. Right-footed and can hit a free kick. She had a beautiful free kick goal recently with that right foot. 
they're they're capable and they have quality. And I actually enjoyed watching this Italy team in the footage that I saw. But I, I just don't think they're there yet, as opposed to some of the other teams that I think could really make a run in this tournament. I I do like the front three. They they yeah. do have quite a um, mobile front three, and I like Giuliano playing as the as the deep line playmaker in that midfield. So. They tend to play. I was reading um, that they, they they tend to play a four three three. But when I was I was watching a lot of the footage, it was it was very fluid, and 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 so I think that could be quite interesting. But I think Italy are very much a, a tier two team in in this tournament. I oh. am more optimistic than either of you. Maybe that's just my 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 love of this Italy team because we've been kind of fascinated them since like we first started watching them. Uh, Daryl and I were were into them way back when, and I remain so. I think this team could be really exciting. And I think that starts with their performance at uh, the last World Cup. I saw a stat that the number of female players in Italy has gone up around 14% since uh, that result. And this is a team that since that time of making to the knockout rounds of the World Cup has taken that Sweden team we just talked about to penalties in the Golf Cup. Uh, they have a manager who has been there, who has kind of the backing of the players and seems to have kind of figured out a recipe for success, which is chemistry and consistency. Uh, uh, seven of the 11 possible starters, uh, Joe, I think you were touching on this, uh, are from Juve. You've got lots of Roma and Milan in there. But if you look at the the spine of this team, starting with uh, Gama as the center back and captain, Juve, uh, Gai and Giuliano, uh, Caruso, Bonansea, and Girelli, all playing for Juve. So you've got this sort of spine, this seven of the 11 players playing for a team that has won, I think the last four titles in Italy, it speaks to a team that kind of knows how they want to play, have a ton of familiarity, know how to play off each other, but can get results against stronger opposition. I wouldn't say that they're a favorite. I wouldn't say that they're going to go far, but I won't be surprised if this is a team that springs a surprise result or two. All right, two more teams to cover. We've got Belgium, Tater, uh, 19th in the FIFA rankings. What do we have to say about them? They've had the same coach in Yves O'Neill for over a decade, so they are consistent in that department. Yeah, that's good. They're consistent as well in being uh, a good representation of a common theme in my research for this Women's World Cup. Uh, basically, my major themes uh, that I wrote down at the very top, basically there's a sizable divide in the quality and qualifying uh there are basically there's blurrier lines between the haves and the have-nots, which is good, but that means that we still have issues relating to pay and inequality. Belgium, a very good example of that last thing. This is not a team that is fully professional, and I think that is shocking given how much talent we see coming through Belgium on the men's side, how many huge players, world-class players we talk about regularly, and yet with the women's side of things, we don't have a fully professional national team yet. Uh, a great example of that would would be uh, Amber Tisiak, 22-year-old defender, joined Leuven in 2020. Uh, she will be probably starting at center back for the national team she has been since 2020. But from a Guardian article, she teaches Dutch and history, uh, but will quit this summer to become a professional player. That's a 22-year-old who's going to start at the Euros for her national team, but is still not a full professional because that's where we are with the women's game. And I hope then that this Belgium team is able to get some results and are able to score some goals and play really exciting football because as I just said with Italy, that can spark interest, that can spark money, and there should be more money from the Belgium FA and uh, just from like the amount of talent that we know Belgium is capable of producing. And there are key performers in this team that I think we'll end up talking a lot more about as as we progress. Maybe but not Janice Kamen, who's a 33-year-old veteran, 100-plus 100, 100 appearances, uh, played for Lyon, but not very 
often, but she is their all-time leader in appearances. Uh, Tina de Cagne, I apologize. My Belgian-Flemish-French pronunciation is terrible. Uh, 25-year-old midfielder slash forward for Hoffenheim, previously for Anderlecht. Most of this team uh, having some connection to Anderlecht, where I think there is a little bit of money for the women's side of things. But uh, de Cagne, 37 goals in 75 appearances. Scored two before halftime in a 4-0 win over Switzerland, which allowed Belgium to top their Euro qualifying group. Uh, and then Tessa Vullartz, I again, the pronunciation quite bad. Graham, I know you've watched a bit of her and have some thoughts on her, but uh, she scores goals, it turns out. She scores goals. Yes, absolutely. The whole team is sort of built around uh, Willie Art. And when I was watching a lot of the footage this morning, because I, I I am a sucker for a number nine and a goal scorer. So I kind of have a power rankings of the number nines at this tournament with Midema and uh, I know her most was injured, but I, I was watching a lot of her as well this morning, uh, Spain forward. But uh, Willier is, I think, is going to have a good tournament. If Sp- if sorry, Belgium can get kind of the the support to her around in this tournament. Uh, last but not least, in Group D, Joe, we have Stelpurna Okar, our girls, Iceland. What do you got? I like the Icelandic you just tossed in there, Ryan. First of all, they're 18th in the world according to the FIFA rankings. They're in that for me that that lower tier of teams. There's a whole bunch of teams. Maybe they're maybe they're in the second tier of teams. They're not in the favorites group, and, and they're maybe able to get out of this group, especially in Group D. I think anything's game after France. I do expect France to get out. Iceland, for their part, they haven't played a ton of soccer recently. Just one uh, tune-up game before this tournament. That was a 3-0 win over Poland. Who are not very good. Their other games uh, that they played recently, they beat the Czech Republic 1-0. Back in April, they, they beat Belarus 5-0. And then they beat uh, they, they were beaten, excuse me, by the U.S. 5-0 in the She Believes Cup back in February. So that kind of gives you an idea. This Iceland team can beat up on a lot of smaller nations. But I just think when it comes to playing a team like France, and we'll see that in the group stage, or playing some of the other giants in this tournament if they're able to make it out of the group, that just feels like one or two steps too far for this Iceland team. All right. Thank you, Joe. That's uh, all 16 teams in the Euros covered. Last thing we have to do, Joe, uh, is your predictions, of course, for who's going to win. Spain are the bookies' favourite, as we mentioned. England in second for most bookmakers. And we've got France, Netherlands and Sweden. Joe, where would you place your Disney dollars if you had to? I'm putting my Walt Bucks on Spain. I, I don't I don't know that they're going to win this tournament, but it feels like they have some pretty darn good odds. Ryan, you just mentioned those actual odds. They're in that group of favorites for me, and I, I just think Spain can do a lot of damage in this tournament. Tater, your thoughts? Uh, I, I, I hear Joe on Spain. I have just those concerns about what happens if their approach isn't working. And I do, and I will own the fact that that is entirely fueled by my frustration with the men's team when they played a similar style and you would end up with those sort of 1-0 wins that they ended up kind of getting a fluky goal but had 88% of possession or whatever it may be. I just have that lingering concern, unfair as it may be. I would lean towards England and Sweden. I think two teams that are very deep, have established managers who know how to get the best out of their players, have a plan for how they want to play, have backups to that plan, and have backups to their key players if something goes wrong. I think England and Sweden, I would expect... To, to do well I don't know how the draws work out so it may well be that England could like get Sweden in the next round and then that prediction is off but if they can avoid each other mm-hmm. I wouldn't hate that as a final Graham you sound like you see some value in Sweden as well you're going to lump on the Swedes yeah I definitely see value in, in Sweden in terms of how they are being seen as, by the bookmakers I, I certainly have them higher than fifth favorites but if I have to pick a winner I have to say I'm probably going with England put it this way if this tournament was being held in another country 
I, I think I'd still have England in my top three. So then you add in the home support element. You then factor in that Spain, who would probably who are also in my top three, they have a they have a really tough group, so they could maybe trip up there. England have an easier group that allow them to build some momentum. So I think there's a lot of things in their favour. I don't think England have got a lot of injuries ahead of this tournament either, where some of the bigger nations do. So yeah, England for me are. are my picks to to win this tournament. I have to say, Graham, it's amazing how clearly you enunciated that with such gritted teeth. That's incredible. <laughs> well done. Yeah, I'm used to it by now, <laughs> being on a podcast with you. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, thank you very much, gents. That's an excellent roundup. Graham, thank you very much for your time in this pod. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Tater Rockwell, pleasure as always. Pleasure as mine, sir. Joe Lowry, keep on trucking. Ah, oh, right back at you. And listener, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, we'll have more coverage of Euro 2022 as the days and weeks go by. But for now, bye. Bye.